There's a Dave we all know who thinks all that glitters is goats. And that's all that I wrote for the intro. Base, base, base. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans is brought to you by listeners like you. Why don't you check out the store shop and buy one of Dave's cool t-shirts. The store shop's over at pgttcm.com. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, pgttcm.com. There's a store there that helps this place keep going, and it helps you keep going, and it helps Dave keep putting stuff in your ear, and all that fun stuff. So check out the store at pgttcm.com. Dave has stuff there that you can buy, and I split the profits with him. All right. Also... Why not check out uh, why not check out Monster Kid Radio? Monster Kid Radio has stuff going on. Check them out. They're awesome. Good evening, kitties. That's a that's another one that uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos used to uh, sponsor there for a while. They're pretty cool. Check them out. They do a uh, they do a Tales from the Crypt podcast. It's really fun. Okay, and also People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. My podcast that I do monthly, where I have Dave and Ken Height and whoever else I can drag onto the show be guests. So this episode, I am supposed to tell you first and foremost, my opinions about Star Trek and Robert Block. Okay, Robert Block first. Robert Block, he's uh, one of uh, one of the originals, uh, a disciple of Lovecraft, uh, Weird fiction writer, wrote Psycho, Robert Block, Night Gallery. I know who Robert Block is. You should know who Robert Block is, too. And if you don't, listen to whatever Dave's going to tell you. Star Trek. Love Star Trek. Love original Star Trek. Love, oh my goodness, one of my first memories is of Star Trek, the animated series. Um, me, the editor, not D.B. the character. D.B. the character is probably like 100 or 20, 200 years old. Anyway, but me, personally... I love Star Trek. I grew up loving Star Trek as I got older. I kind of like, you know, um, didn't care about it so much. I never really got into like action figures or comic books of it. Uh, I played some video games, uh, some point and click adventures in like junior high and high school. I really enjoyed Next Generation when that came out, I think when I was in like sixth grade or something like that. Uh, and maybe before that. And, yeah, no, no, I enjoyed Next Generation, and a lot of the other shows that came after Next Generation. I didn't watch Enterprise, and I haven't watched anything newer. I wasn't a big fan of the uh, the movies, the, the uh, new, newer movies, the newer movies. I loved the old movies, uh, even the ones that were supposed to be terrible. I really enjoyed those. Uh, Bones has always been my favorite character. Always love Bones. I really like it when they do- uh, brought on Dr. Pulaski for Next Generation because I thought, hey, she's a lot like Bones, <laughs> without realizing. I think they were really trying to go for like a Bones analog for Next Generation. I really like Deep Space Nine, but I don't really remember it very well. I, I watched several seasons of it, and then I quit watching it because I moved somewhere where I didn't have a TV, and uh, then... You know, I, I, I'd ask people, so how's Star Trek going? And they're like, oh, man, it's crazy. There's, like, this war with this Dominion. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And I don't know. Maybe I'm getting stuff. My Star Trek's all mixed up. But anyway, love Star Trek. 
again, uh, my favorite was the animated series. One of my earliest memories. I've gone back to it. It's it's like, uh, you know, the final season of the original series had a lot of the same voice actors, and uh, was written by a lot of the same people. So hey, if you're looking for some more of uh, original flavor Star Trek, you can always go with the animated series. Last time I checked, it was available on Netflix. It might be available on Hulu, one of the two. But yeah, your choices are good with those two these days. Hey everybody, this is Dave. I'm just taking a little bit of break from uh, wrangling some goats, and uh, we're going to talk about, in this episode, Star Trek. Now, you may have noticed that one of the motifs of Dave's underground goat shenanigans is that we don't necessarily talk about things in the way that you expect it to be. So, we're not going to talk about, you know, a lot of the things of Star Trek that you might hear about on a, on a different podcast. We're going to actually zero in on some, I think, fascinating, but at the same point, kind of obscure aspects of Trek. And the first, we're going to talk about Trek as cosmic horror. And, well, let me back. We're going to focus in on the three stories that were written in the original Star Trek that were written by Robert Block. Now, many of you know Robert Block by the fact that he is the author of the book Psycho, which, of course, was made into that masterpiece by uh, Alfred Hitchcock. But what you may not know is that he is the only person to have a story dedicated to him by H.P. Lovecraft. And young Robert Block and Lovecraft were correspondents. In fact, they they had this little contest going where they would create each other as a character in their stories and kill them off. And there are three stories of the original Star Trek series which Robert Block wrote. Now, the interesting thing I find interesting is that he didn't try to do something completely original. What he did is he took three of his short stories and then he moved them from, you know, Earth, you know, late, early, I mean, early 20th century into space, into, into the 23rd century. So each of Robert Bloch's stories was inspired by a tale that he originally wrote uh, and are pulp stories. Now, in ways, I think Star Trek is the antithesis of um, cosmic horror. Cosmic horror is this idea that the universe is so big and dark and indifferent that you can't understand it. And Star Trek is basically the story of these people who are trying to shine lights into this darkness of the cosmos and to understand it and to explore it. And yes, they have personal stories, and yes, occasionally they have wars with the Dominion or the Klingons or the Romulans. But in general, the history of the Federation is the history of science and exploration. However, we can definitely see that Roddenberry was influenced by pulp stories, especially pulp westerns, but pulp science fiction, maybe even a little bit of pulp horror. Uh, his storytelling is definitely very pulpish. 
And many of Star Trek's best baddies are very sort of Cthulhu mythos to degree, whether it's the, the crystalline entity or, you know, is Q a personification of an avatar of Narlahotep? So he wrote three episodes, and the first one was the episode called What Are Little Girls Made Of? Now, in ways, this episode is just a classic mad scientist story. And, and you probably remember it best, and this is what I remember it, when the mad scientist puts Kirk on this, this spinning table and he makes a duplicate android of him. And, and Kirk is like thinking, 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 trying to get some sort of message that the uh, crew will realize it's not him. And it's that scene where... Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick and tired of your half-breed interference, do you hear? And, you know, from this Spock gets, oh, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't the real Kirk, this isn't my Kirk. And in, in ways, this sort of is a character-defining moment of both Spock, that he is so, in, not intuitive, but he, he, he gathers so much information uh, that he can recognize from that saying that, you know, this isn't my friend, but also that Kirk and the Federation are beyond racism and such that it, it's obviously not Kirk when, when that's said. Also about this episode it is it's definitely inspired, I think, by Forbidden Planet. Um, but Block sneaks in the words old ones, you know, talking about the alien race before. And the old ones, of course, what he and Lovecraft use as these great extraterrestrials that are so powerful that to the human beings they seem like gods. So this is a this is definitely I think an homage to the, the original Cthulhu writing sequel, uh, circle as well as you know Lovecraft and Bloch's earlier works. So this was based on a 1940 Bloch short story called The Queen of Metal Men. I have not read this. I'm looking to see if maybe I can find a, a copy. Um, the, all the books that have it are like $150. So I'm, I'm looking to see if I can find a copy somewhere uh, at a reasonable price to read. But um, we don't really think Block, we think of, you know, as the inventor of the slasher, the inventor of psychological horror, you know, and the greatest Cthulhu mythos story that I've read or personally feel uh, that's not by Lovecraft is Bloch's um, notebook found in an abandoned house, which is just a masterpiece. And I would recommend anyone who, who is into the Cthulhu mythos or just good horror at all, that's the story you want to read. But we don't think of Bloch as a science fiction writer. But like most pulp writers, he, he tried his hand on it. The next episode that Bloch wrote was called Cat's Paw. And that's the one where there's this, you know, haunted mansion and witches. And, and I think we remember it the most with that giant cat in space. The, the other scene that I sort of remember from watching this as a child is that, you know, the witch has this like pendant or version of 
the Enterprise and holds it over a flame and it starts damaging the 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 real ship. This um it sort of <clears throat> opens the debate sort of magic versus science in which I guess Spock is the, sort of the perfect person to sort of have this debate, you know, and it, it it's real. It's obviously happening. And so, you know, it's not magic. It has to be telepathy. And there's that line, you, you do with your mind what we do with our tools. And then when uh, Kirk, you know, breaks the magic wand, we see these two sort of eggplant chicken type aliens at their feet you know that this was all mind control and an illusion so we do get this very i think cthulhu mythos of magic as science you know lovecraft and um you know dreams of the witch house basically said that magic is math that you know these were form mathematical formulas that that gilman was creating or trying to duplicate that the from the witches um so i do like that aspect uh this particular episode to me was sort of always an eh episode i never really got into this one as a child uh, and even i have to watch it older i don't know if i've seen it in the last 10 years uh, as a child it just was too incongruent for me it was just too much victorian you know hammer film in space but but maybe as adult and i appreciate you know uh, the cthulhu mythos more maybe i would enjoy it more at a pure trivia fact this is the first episode uh with chekhov now block did not create the character of chekhov i think that it's very well documented that um, Roddenberry responded to this uh, article in Pravka that, you know, in the future there's no Russians, and so he, he wrote a Russian character, or Pravka wrote that in the Star Trek future there is no Russians, so he wrote a, a Russian character, uh, and then he just happened to shoehorn it into the first uh, story that he could shoehorn it into was uh, written by Block. And Block's uh, inspiration for this was his uh, his own 1957 short story, A Broomstick Ride. Now, Block's third and final Star Trek is probably his best and most famous, Wolf in the Fold. And this is the one with, with Red Jack, with Jack the Ripper, where uh, Jack the Ripper is basically this sort of spiritual force that travels with mankind as he goes into space. And, and this is very, very mythos-based. Uh, and as a child, Star Trek scared me. I mean, when I was six, seven, eight, I would get scared because it was one of the few TV shows I'd watch where people died. Uh, you know, even then I knew that, you know, the red shirts were gonna get killed. And so this this story especially, I had this I'm afraid of and I love it. And I love that, you know, that this was sort of the this sort of eternal killer that they were able to eliminate by just spreading its atoms all over space uh in the the transporter. Now this is based 
on a, a Robert Block story called uh, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, which I have read, which is actually the first of the Robert Block stories I've ever read um, before anything else that he, and I didn't know who he was. I just read it in a, a collection of stories. And it's a good, good story. Now, if you have seen Wolf in the Fold and you are watching, or reading yours truly, Jack the Ripper, and you think you know how it's going to end, no, you're not. Um, completely different ending. Uh, in fact, um, I, I recommend it. it. It's a good, scary story. It fits in. It's not really considered part of the Cthulhu mythos, but it definitely fits. Um, and again, it's this sort of creature that lives on forever inside a person's personality that they don't even aware of. And it is a truly well-written, scary story, just like the uh, episode is. And I think most people put this particular episode, and they probably call it the Jack of the Ripper or the, the Red Jack episode. I think most people, when they're talking about original Star Trek, this is on their top ten. So, um, David Gerald, who wrote, uh, you know, the War of the Couture series, but is most famous for, you know, the Trouble of Tribbles, he tells this story that, that Block had this idea that there was, like, these drinks that were different colored, and as the Starfleet personnel were drinking it, they would get different mind conscious, their mind would change and they would see different things. And at first, according to Gerald's story, Roddenberry kind of rejected it because it was just, it was too complicated for what was basically this short sort of simple scene that would basically be a joke, you know, their their minds are sort of got drunk and their minds changed. But he also says that the the producers were concerned that they'd be seen as endorsing drug use, which was a big concern from TV companies in, in the 60s. Now, um, and, and I mentioned um, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, which I think is a great story. But, you know, this isn't the first TV treatment that, that Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper received. Uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller um, also um, did a version. And, and I have to admit, I have not seen it. I plan on watching it. But that's one of the things I want to do. Is sort of, And I love Thriller. I, Thriller does this amazing version of uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, Pigeons from Hell. I just haven't seen this particular episode. And I kind of want to watch that. And then I want to re-watch a wolf in the fold. So sort of tie this all up, the Star Trek novelization of this story was written not by Block, but by James Blish, who is known for many of his science fiction, uh, but also horror. Uh, and he is, again, he's also sort of considered a, a periphery on the, the Lovecraft cosmic horror writer so it all kind of comes full circle now there are a lot of changes between the book psycho 
and the movie Psycho. A lot of it on the personality and appearance and behavior of Norman Bates. And there are a lot of changes in the block short stories and the um, the the Star Trek episodes that they he used that he he wrote that he inspired on his own writings. But a lot of that also comes to is Block was a short story. He was a novelist. He was not a television writer. And Roddenberry would have to spe- spend extra time basically polishing and making these scripts into something that could be on television as opposed to, you know, a short story with one report that he once, you know, had to add two, extra two days to the shooting so that he could basically rewrite this into usable material on the fly. Block only wrote the three episodes, and a lot of it was he became disillusioned with television. Uh, basically, not much fighting Roddenberry, although uh, it was it, fighting the production companies. He didn't like the way the production companies worked and the way they wanted things. I suspect, although I can't find anything on this, that Roddenberry in this case may have sided with the production company because, you know, he was a creative genius. I think he saw that sort of level of expertise and was impressed with the writing of Block. But at the same point it was his job to get a a tv show out so there are no block scripts in season three and to be honest since season three is such a hodgepodge of good and bad that may be for the best but um okay just sort of wrapping up a little bit about uh robert block and star trek But it's not the end of the Star Trek goodies for this episode. One of my favorite episodes of Star Trek is from the animated series where Spock goes through that gateway thing, I can't remember its name, and goes back to his childhood and ends up helping himself anyway. It's one of my favorite ones. I I enjoyed seeing uh, Spock's childhood. It's like no one asked for it, but we saw it anyway and got to see a little window into Spock and understand him a little bit better, which I thought was pretty cool. And here we go. More stuff. Hey, everybody. Uh, we're back, and uh, I'm at the barn, and I've got a couple of friends here with me. <laughs> yeah, those, those are uh, my little babies there. This is Solomon and Sonia. Now, if you're familiar with uh, Dave's underground goat shenanigans and mythos, you know, these are the two goats that, uh, among other things, they can glow in the dark. And uh, they're the ones that led me to the secret underground Illuminati base. And they're not too happy with me right now because for our special uh, Star Trek episode, I've dressed them up. If you are listening to this uh, on an iPhone or, you know, a cell phone or, you know, some sort of computer, you can't see this. 
if you're tuning in psychically through a Telemetric 7X34 device, frequency 79.89X2 indigo, and you can see here's Sonia, and she's got her little blue science shirt on, and I got little Vulcan ears, and here is Solomon, and he's got his little red shirt on, and they don't seem to be happy. They don't like clothing. <laughs> and they've just taken off, and they just ran through a wall. Okay, so, um, okay, they'll come back. You know, we may hear them uh, while I'm talking, but, um, okay. While we're waiting for the twins to get back here, let's talk Star Trek. And what we're going to talk about is your favorite uh, your favorite series. Well, no, we're not really going to talk about yours because it's not your show. It's my show, and I'm talking and you're listening. So we're going to talk about my favorite Star Trek series, or one that's really close to the top. And Star Trek is a lot like Doctor Who. Whoever your favorite doctor is depends a lot on who was playing the doctor when you first saw it. So a lot of people, whatever the first series of Star Trek they saw, it's the one that they, they love the most. So you have some of the older fans who like the original series, people who were growing up in the 80s, you know, the early 90s, they, they really like, you know, the next generation, you know, maybe... If you came to age or to the show after that, you know, maybe Deep Space Nine or, you know, Voyager's your favorite. Well, you know, and I, you know, watched uh, the original series when I was a kid. It was in syndication. But I also watched the animated series. And there's, I'm surprised, there's a lot of Trekkies or Trekkers or whatever we're supposed to be calling them now just are not familiar with Star Trek the Animated Series. So I want to talk about that because it's definitely one of my favorite of the Star Trek series. Maybe top two. And it started out as a Saturday morning cartoon. And it wasn't even called Star Trek the Animated Series. It was just Star Trek. And literally, it was that. It was taking off from where the series ended. So, we all know that the original Star Trek, you know, the Enterprise had a five-year mission. Three years, we saw that on TV. Well, then there was two years of the animated series. So, that kind of makes up the five years. In fact, if it had gone any farther, they would have eventually ended the series with, you know, the Enterprise coming back to Earth at the end of its five-year mission. So there was 22 episodes. It was spread out over two years. Although they were run on Saturday morning, they reran for like a total of four years, I think. And then you would sometimes see it as filler when the, at least in the LA market that I grew up with, um, if something, they needed like a 30 minute gap or something, they would often throw these shows in. And the big poll, and the thing that makes these legitimate, for lack of a better word, is the voice actors. They got Leonard Nimoy, uh, Shatner, uh, DeForest Kelly, to, to play the roles. Now, this was done by a company called 
Filmation. Filmation is probably most famous for doing He-Man and uh, the Archies. But at the time, they, they were infamous for cutting corners and cutting costs. And so one of the ways that they were going to save money at first was that they were just going to bring Shatner, DeForest Kelly, and Leonard Nimoy on. And then it kind of, well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But at some point, they agreed to bring on uh, James Duhan and Marshall Barrett. But they were going to leave George Takai and Nichelle Nichols out. You know, and for a series, it's always been about bringing the people of Earth, bringing the people of different races together. Well, it didn't really make a lot of sense to cut out, you know, the two major, you know, characters of people of color. And at this time, you know, after Star Trek had gone away, uh, Nichols and Takai, they were doing okay, but they weren't really getting a lot of jobs. And, and Nimoy heard this. And he said, well, you know what? I am not going to be part of this if you don't bring back the original cast. Filmation caved. Now, apparently, though, original cast meant the cast that they started out with, you know, of the series. And, I, and I'm not talking about, you know, the, the cage or the... the the pre one, but the, of the series. So, who did not get to be part of this, and often, you know, when he's interviewed about it, he's kind of upset, is Walter Koning, uh, Chekhov. And he was kind of upset that they had left him out. And again, there's a lot of different stories, but they did decide they were going to, you know, they were going to throw him a bump. And depending on who you talk to, this actually came before or after they decided they weren't going to have him as a reprise his character. But they had Walter Koning write an episode. And this episode is a head trip you got to watch. Because it's called The Infinite Vulcan, and it's got this 30-foot giant Spock clone. Trust me, I think it's still on Netflix. Go ahead and watch that episode. Watch them all. They're actually pretty fun. But the guy who, who Filmation really got their money out of was James Doohan, who played Scotty. And, you know, he, re, he does Scotty, of course. But he does actually 50 voices on this. So, you know, they really got their, their money worth on that one. So, in addition to... Uh, Walter Koning writing an episode. Uh, Larry Niven writes an episode where he takes, you know, his alien race from Ringworld, the Kazanti, a Kazan, Kazanti plural, and puts them in the Star Trek universe. David Gerald, who wrote the original Trouble with Triples episode, writes another Trouble episode. Um, they get a lot of original episode or original series episode writers to write for the series and one of the reasons for that is at the time there was a writer's strike and so a lot of these tv writers could not write but animation shows were not covered by the union so they could write 
Saturday morning cartoons and not cross the picket line, so to speak. And so the writing is sharp. It's, I mean, there's good ones, there's bad ones, there's just weird things, and there's good stories, and there's emotional stories, there's funny stories. And, and so there is some hit and miss, sure. But that's really true with the original series, you know, too, with their writing. So the writing, though, was a better quality than a Saturday night, a Saturday morning cartoon had any right to expect to be. And the bulk of the episodes are really good. The only real problem sometimes is the format. And that the Saturday morning cartoons were 30 minutes, 22 to 24 minutes after intro. So you got to really sort of, they have to cram the story in. In fact, Star Trek, you know, the animated series is the first, and maybe, I'm not sure, but I think the only Star Trek to win a non, you know, technical special effects or sound or something like that, Emmy. And, and it won for, you know, the best uh, daytime children's program. Something else that is both to its advantage and its disadvantage. And that's the format. The fact that it was animated was a plus and a minus. It was a minus because filmation was cheap and they would often reuse the same stills and they were limited to how many layers that they could do to, to make the picture. Uh, and the, the guy who did the, the, the coloring had this weird thing about pink. So there's pink spaceships. They're, the trebles all become pink. Uh, the Klingons wear pink vests. And the guy who was over him, head producer, was colorblind. And I, I don't mean red-green colorblind. I mean literally could only see black and white, the rarest type of colorblind. So there's a lot of weird pink. But then again, they did things that they could not have done with special effects or practical special effects in the early 70s. So we have a, a, a female cat alien. We have this helmsman who has three arms and three legs. You know, we have living universes. So there's a lot of things that just would never have had the ability, technique, or money to do live action. In fact, the animated series is the first appearance of what we now call the holodeck. And they actually thought about it, thought it would be a cool idea in the original series. Just couldn't afford to do it. But as an animation, they could. And a lot of things that were explored in the original series are revisited. Tribbles are revisited. Harry Mudd gets another story. The uh, vacation planet where, you know, everything that they think of comes real, that comes back into play. And there's even one where the, that time portal and the, where they, you know, the city on the edge of forever comes back. 
and where Spock is accidentally wiped out of the time zone. So he comes back and there's an Andoran who's now the science officer and the only one who really remembers him was Kirk who was on a mission. So he goes back and uh, Spock actually goes back in time because he finds out that Spock in this universe died as a little boy. And he goes back and, and he meets you know, himself as a child and talks about being bullied and he has this pet, this giant tiger creature that is hurt and, and young Spock has to decide you know, whether to, to put it down or, or to let it live because he loves it so much and, and this was this was major writing it was well writing it was not dumbed down for kids kids could understand it but the storyline was not uh, dumbed down it was a hard sharp you know poignant story and we kind of expect that from a lot of of, of cartoons animation now but not in the 70s. And the, the network braced for this huge impact because they thought, you know, dealing with a, you know, a child having to put down a pet was uh, just going to get this terrible writing campaign. And they got no negative letters. And they got letters, just the opposite, people saying, hey, my kid lost their dog or their hamster or their kitten, and we had to put it down. And they understood what Spock was going through, and it made it easier for them. And, you know, that's always been Star Trek at its core. Is it? Even this half Vulcan, you know, half human, it, it's about our humanity. Um, so, and, and the animated series keeps it up. I mean, it, it's good storytelling. It's not perfect storytelling. There's hits and misses, but there's some darn good storytelling. Like I said, the, the, the hardest problem, or the only thing I really have with it, the only problem is that they're, they have to rush some of these stories. And, and they're good. They use their time and effectively, effective storytelling. But if they had a little bit more time, I could see some of these stories more fleshed out. So, you know, I highly recommend it. If you don't familiar with at least the stories, um, I'd check them out. Um, so, oh, here they come back. I <laughs> And Sonia and Solomon have just walked through the wall again. And between the two of them and their teeth, they're holding a, a bathala, you know, that big giant sort of melee weapon that uh, Mr. Worf uses. And uh, uh, put that down. Put, no, put that down. And, uh, okay, hey, uh, put it, okay, hey, I've got to de-arm some goats before they, uh, do some damage here, but, uh, as soon as we're done, uh, with this, I will go ahead and I will meet you down in the, uh, underground Illuminati base, because i got a treat for you there. Yeah. No, no, put it down. Hey, hey, come back, come back. Yeah. Up next, Hollywood conspiracies. I don't, I, I don't really know any. Dave knows some, I'm pretty sure probably found some in that bunker of his. That's my guess. And, uh, hey, I'm guessing you want to help the show succeed. So why don't you just go wherever you find Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Recommend it. Give it five stars. Tell people about it. And also, you know, telling people about People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos helps me out, too, because 
it helps this podcast feed grow. So maybe then Dave can splinter off and do bigger and cooler things. And I can still have him work on projects for me. Anyway, here we go. Hollywood Conspiracies. And more Dave! Okay, hey, as Dave, we're back. And I have removed from uh, Sonia and Solomon uh, the uh, Klingon Bafla. Um, so uh, it took a lot of raisins, but uh, I've got this. And I don't know where they got this. This must have been somewhere in the underground Illuminati lab. And, and whatever it is, it's not a replica. This is, this is sharp. I mean, uh, so there's this unwritten law among us farmers that we are not going to arm the goats so um okay uh i was able to to get them to give it up uh i had to promise i will never make them wear star trek uniforms again and uh, a whole lot of raisins yeah whoever said we don't negotiate with terrorists they haven't raised goats so uh i wanted to show you something here so we're down in about we're in the underground uh, Illuminati base over about five floors down and if you've listened to the show before what I think that we don't have a lot of records of exactly what the Illuminati was doing here and, and it goes down 60 70 different levels and uh, you know me and the rest of the nerds we've explored maybe 10 percent of this but I think part of this was going to be some sort of museum so there's definitely exhibits, and um, this is each room is dedicated to an artifact. You know, we we talked about uh, a possessed 1938 uh, radio. You know, I told you a little bit about uh, Danny Moonstar's guitar, uh, which was apparently made by a demon and had a curse on it. But here, um, this one, of course, is Star Trek related. So let's go in. So this is like a, a set you see, you know, or, or uh, a museum piece you see at like Universal Studios or, you know, the, the Star Trek experience the, that was in uh, Las Vegas. Um, here we're walking up. This is one of the original models that was used in the original series of uh, the USS Enterprise. Uh, and here's a wall. It's full of, you know, uh, Publicity stills, uh, photographs, you know, color and black and white. You know, here's Shatner, Nimoy, you know, Takai, uh, Nicole Nichols, uh, Marjorie Barrett. Uh, look, there's a uh, one with uh, Gene Roddenberry and uh, you know, uh, producer uh, DC Fontana. Oh, uh, here's a, a really big picture of uh, Ricardo Montalban. You know, laughing it up with the the cast and crew there, and he's got his whole con costume. And then there's three pictures here of people I don't expect you to recognize. I didn't recognize them. They're all wearing, you know, the red Star Trek uniform. And they've got <coughs> a black border on their, their picture frame. And, you know, here on the wall, there's uh, some more pictures of, the, you know, the Desilu studio where, uh, you know, the original Star Trek was shot. Uh, you know, here's some props. It looks like a, original tribbles, you know, original phaser here. Uh, here's a, a tricorder. Now, if we go into the middle of the room, there's this, this big sort of glass 
case, and in it is a, a, a mannequin without a head, and it's got, you know, uh, one of the original uh, red uh, Star Trek uniforms. So originally, red was uh, operations, which was security and engineering, and um, that's why there were so many red shirts who were killed, as opposed to the blue medical or, you know, command and, and the yellow. Uh, blue, of course, medical and science. Red shirts got such a joke, you know, that they were all going to die off. That they, when they did the, the next generation, they actually, they, they flip-flopped them. And they made, you know, red command and, and, and yellow operations. Uh, just because, you know, red shirts' death had become a cliche. And then here's this big leather-bound notebook which is, if you listen to the show before, that's is basically the Illuminati case notes on this shirt. And it, it's called, of course, Red Shirt 13. Um, and I, I don't think that, you know, this is really going to blow anybody's mind, but Star Trek and, and, and pushing it and making it a series and a global phenomena it, it was an Illuminati project. Uh, and so the Illuminati was involved with Star Trek pretty much from the beginning. And they had a top agent, one of their most powerful inner circle members, working on it. Uh, and it's probably not who you thought. But, um, I mean, this concepts that aliens exist and we can live coexistent with aliens and, and racial equality and sort of this sort of liberal paradigm future, um, it, it kind of matched with the Illuminati's theories, if not Illuminati in practice. So, yes, from my reading, Star Trek was a Illuminati at least endorsed project. Now, that brings us to Red Shirt 13. And Red Shirt 13, it's really Red Shirt Costume 13. It's kind of a, um, you know, misnomer here because it's the shirt and it's those, those big wool pants and the boots. So it's, it's the full costume. And this was designed sort of generic male size for you know, extras. And for different extras in different episodes, we'll be able to wear this uniform among many others um, because, you know, they didn't make a, a new costume for every extra that was in the show. And this one was the 13th because apparently it was the 13th costume made for, for extras. And, and there's nothing, at least in the beginning, it was just another sort of produced, you know, uh, uniform there's nothing specific about it that would indicate it would be cursed other than it is a red shirt and it's associated with the number 13. In fact at the before we end this story you know I'll, I'll go over some theories why the Illuminati thought that this particular shirt or uniform or costume might be cursed. So the, the first person to ever wear this shirt his name was Eustace Javakoski. Now, he wanted to be an actor, and 
it was not really a name. Eustace Jabakowski was not really a name that it was, you know, well tailored for in the late 1960s uh, TV and movie acting. So he went by the name Johnny Ulysses. Now, uh, to me, Johnny Ulysses sounds like, you know, a 1960s porn name. Not that I've ever actually watched 1960 porn get you, but that's what the name sounds like to me. And he did a couple of beer commercials. I think it was in cigarette commercials back when they could still do, you know, cigarette commercials on TV. Uh, a couple of local uh, L.A. area commercials, you know, for uh, uh, a shoe store and, and uh, grocery stores. Um, and he was breaking out of commercials to into TV and it was going to be his first TV series role so uh, Johnny Ulysses was going to be uh, a character uh, just noted as the ensign and it wasn't a speaking part and it was going to be the episode written by our good friend Robert Block what are little girls made of? And this is believed by many Star Trekologists that this is the episode that actually started the, the red shirts being killed off phenomenon. And I probably probably should have mentioned that, you know, that that Robert Block, if not is credited with creating the red shirt phenomena. You know, his episode is credited with the beginning of the red shirt phenomenon. I should have probably mentioned that when I talked about Block earlier. But there was this part that was left out where where Ulysses' character finds, you know, this shining trapezoid, which is direct reference to Block's friend, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, who, um, you know, uh, if you if you read the stories, both of them shared uh, the shining trapezoid in, in several of their stories, and, and, and so uh, the ensign is found, you know, dead, and no one can tell why, and just has that shining trapezoid. Uh, so Block and and uh, Gene Roddenberry they argued and argued about this, and so. They said, okay, we'll film it. So they filmed the scene. Um, and in the end, it's cut out. In fact, the scenes are deleted. The Illuminati claim they didn't even have any copies of the scene. Block, though, to, to, to pacify Block, uh, what Rockberry did is he, they were still building part of the set. So he made the doors. If you look, you go in now, watch the original episode. The doors are trapezoids. That was to pacify Block. So, so Johnny Ulysses, he thinks that this is going to be his break into Hollywood. You know, this is his, it's it's not a big part. It's not even a speaking part. But this is going to be people are going to see this show, see him, and not only are people watching the TV, but you know, producers, directors. You know, this was going to be his big break because he 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 felt that. Correct. So, you know, Star Trek was going to be a phenomenon. Well, what happened is the night after they filmed it, uh, Johnny Ulysses and his 
his girlfriend, uh, a woman named Shelly Smith, uh, were out. They were celebrating, and he had this. He spent a lot of money trying to get this persona of a up-and-coming uh, Hollywood actor. So he was in debt, you know, and uh, he, but he put up money and he had a little red sports car. And so they went out, fancy dinner, uh, spent you know, the last couple bucks they had, and then drank a little too much, and then went for a drive up uh, PCH. And uh, they, he, as a driver, he just said, drunk too much, missed one of those turns, and, and he just shot off the cliff of uh, the Pacific Coast Highway. And, and in fact, strangely enough, the, the California Highway Patrol, the CHP, three separate people saw it. Uh, you know, another driver, a, a night fisherman, and, and like, I think it was somebody walking their dog. And all three people strangely used the description of the car going off the cliff like a red rocket. None of them knew, of course, that you know he had been in TV or science fiction. It's just simultaneously they all used the term to describe that car going off that cliff like a, a red rocket. So um, Johnny Ulysses' part is it, it, cut out, and, and he dies before he realizes that you know it wasn't his big break. I mean, I mean he was dead. It wouldn't have made any difference. But the part was cut off, and he dies before that. You know, that's a tragic story, I mean. And, uh, you know, I've driven down PCH quite a bit. Yeah, those curves could be kind of treacherous. And especially, you know, I, I, never, you know, I would never support anything or say anything to, to encourage drunk driving. But they can be some, some pretty rugged curves there. And, and it's a sad story, but it's not really by itself a curse. And then comes death too. So, um, the uniform, the uniform, you know, red shirt 13, it goes into a pile, waiting there until the next time they need somebody to, to, to use it. And, uh, the next time, actually, they only use this one because it's the last of the ones, and there's no real reason they can think of, but other than maybe it's a little bit bigger than the other, the other ones made, so it, it takes kind of a tall guy to, taller than a normal guy to wear it, but, um, so, um, it's not, um, uh, it's, it's just not used that often until the second season. And, and this is that classic mirror, mirror episode. And now, uh, this is the episode, you know, where, um, Kirk and company get transported into the, the evil universe. You know, it's got Spock with the goatee and the... And the, the gold lame, and, and, and hey, that's great television. It really is a great episode. But there's a scene that's cut out that was shot where Savage Kirk is on the regular Enterprise, and he kills a crewman. He kills a red shirt. So they they, they cut the scene out because basically. Kirk is supposed to be this great leader, and, you know, as 1960s characters, you know, go, that is his trait, he's the leadership character. Uh, in fact, if you got a, a, the original Cyberpunk 2020 on uh, leadership skill, it says there, 
Captain Kirk has an 11 of this. Your character will never have it this high. And it was like, you know, if, if even a, a copier of Kirk kills a character, uh, kills one of its crew members, it's going to diminish his leadership ability. So they just cut that scene out. And the red shirt that was supposed to have been killed by the, uh, the alternative universe Kirk, his name was James Tyrell. Um, again, a very tall man, uh, black and white hair. Uh, I mean, sort of not not black and white like like skunk, black and white like black with you know, white peppering in it. Um, distinctive. Did uh, a lot of extra movies, um, westerns, you know, just TV shows. Um, never really had a main role. Um, and you know, I don't think he was pleased that his his part got cut out. I mean, he got paid the same, but you know, it happens. Scripts get changed, uh, so I don't think he was happy. But he he got the money. Well, a couple of weeks later, he's you know in L.A. and he's golfing, and this huge giant deer just comes on the golf course in, you know, L.A., charges him and gourds the guy, I mean, just rams the guy with his, his, his um, rams the guy with his horns, and, and you know, he, he bleeds out and he dies before they can get him to the hospital. Uh, again, just this sort of weird, bizarre thing that, you know, it's, he kind of chalk up, well, you know, L.A.'s kind of built on their, you know, wilderness, especially in the 60s. I remember my, you know, my grandparents, you know, in the 70s, they lived in sort of a wooded area in, in Eagle Rock in Los Angeles. And, you know, in the 70s, all the way up to the 80s, deer would rarely walk down, occasionally walk down the street. So it was this bizarre thing. But nobody really thought it was like a curse. It, it, it's the third death that really sort of ties things together. And the third person to wear this red uniform is an actor, Peter Brown. Same thing, you know. Been around Hollywood for a couple of years, tried to sing music, you know, just was taking any job he could. And um, this is an episode that wasn't made to finish. And, and as I said, Star Trek was an Illuminati project. And this was going to be sort of this sort of shining jewel of the series. It was going to introduce alien contact. And it was supposed to basically get this idea that the American TV viewer to look forward to contacting aliens. And not that other episodes don't, especially, you know, like uh, Star Trek First Contact or something. But this was supposed to be kind of this thing that people would remember this episode. And when aliens do come down, people will sort of subconsciously fall what happens in this, this episode. And the red shirt was this guy named Peter Brown. So uh, the twist in this story, very Star Trek-like twist, is that the bad guys aren't these new strange aliens. It's the people that aren't ready to meet the aliens. And so they're the guys, they're the ones that killed this, um, uh, the red shirt played by Peter Brown. Well, they're about to film Peter Brown's death scene. They just come back from lunch and nobody can find him. 
and you know Roddenberry and whoever was directing they're all really upset and you know they, this guy just apparently walked off without any you know notice and you know and so they decide they're going to shoot some other scenes but of at the same time and Cape Canaveral in Florida, all the way across the country um, from Hollywood, they find in, you know, Cape Canaveral, you know, NASA's headquarters, I think, they find in a men's bathroom Peter Brown's dead body sitting on the toilet in this, this, this NASA you know, uh, this NASA bathroom literally 15 minutes after he'd been seen in Hollywood. Now, not only are there a lot of Illuminati agents at that time in Hollywood, there were also Illuminati agents in, in working for NASA. So his body, one of the first people to come in contact with this guy's body, and he had the full red uniform and, you know, and uh, was an Illuminati agent. And so he contacts the West Coast Illuminati, and, and they say, "Okay, something happened." So they do this massive cover-up. They they basically hypnotize the entire cast and crew. Forget about this episode, destroy it, and um, you, you know, like it never happened. Same thing. They hypnotize you know the the, the people in uh, Cape Canaveral. You know, that knew about the body. Never happened. The Illuminati does this autopsy on Peter Brown, and he's a strong, healthy person. No poisons, no toxins. Yeah, you know, he had a beer for lunch, maybe. So a little bit of alcohol, but not nothing. He, he should not have been dead. He just was, and there's there no reason for his death. No explanation how he got thousands and thousands of miles from California to Florida in a matter of minutes. But at that time, there was a member of the Illuminati, who was a very important member of the Illuminati, and she was working on the Star Trek series, and her name, and you'll recognize the name, I'm sure, was Lucille Ball. Now, we know Lucille Ball as, you know, the redhead from I Love Lucy, and uh, but uh, uh, Desi Lu Studios, uh, which she and her husband owned, produced and red-lighted, you know, Star Trek. And they did it well, because she was a member of the Illuminati. And uh, I don't think anyone's too surprised when I dropped that name. And so Lucy gets involved. And she begins investigating this. And she come covers that the three, you know, actors that have all worn this uniform have died strange deaths. Um, so she, uh, you know, has the Illuminati do this investigation, and the Illuminati has, they, they scratch their heads. They conclude through use of psychics and Ouija boards that this, this costume is cursed. Whoever wears it will die. But they don't know why. So they, they throw out a lot of theories. The first one, of course, is that Block 
or the great old ones had something to do with it. But they couldn't find any evidence. Uh, then there's this thought that, you know, maybe this was not a costume, but it was actually an alien morph form that turned into a costume and was, and there's just no evidence of that. They tested it and it was just a regular costume. Um, so eventually they say pull the costume. Um, then they come up with this idea, well, let's, maybe we just need to quietly pull the plug on this whole Star Trek project and we'll keep it going, you know, as an idea. But they sort of deliberately started writing bad episodes uh, so that it didn't get renewed for a fourth season. Um, and the final conclusion, though, was that they thought maybe the curse was something to do with just the nature of the number 13 and the nature that, you know, it was designed, this whole red shirt concept, that it was designed for people who died, that the costume was designed for people, characters that would die, and this whole sort of trope of the red shirt comes to life. Um, but even the Illuminati didn't say that, it couldn't conclude that was the reason. Um, and I have to admit, uh, I'm kind of glad that this is costume is much, much, it's built for someone much bigger than me because it wouldn't fit because I'm almost so tempted to put it on. But, you know, if I did, it's something that probably wouldn't happen. So, you know, uh, we just let it sit here and here it is, the, the red shirt of doom. Uh, my name is David, and I'm a farmer, and I hope that you've enjoyed our special Star Trek episode of Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. End of the show, end of the show. Time for me to bug you about t-shirts again. Go to the store shop. Time for me to say, hey, check us out on social media, like... Dave's non-existent Twitter account, I think. I don't know, Dave, do you have a Twitter account? If you do, post it on Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans HQ Facebook page and get a shorter page title. No. Uh, Dave, we love we love the Facebook page. And you can also go to Dave's Corner of the Universe. Just just look for it online and uh, you'll find you'll find Dave's stuff. You'll probably find some links back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you can find all of my stuff and all of the stuff that we have posted for Dave's Corner of the Universe and all the stuff that Dave's done for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, and not to mention all of the great stuff that Dave has done for Black Clock Audio Tales, letting people know who authors are, weird madcap adventures they've been on, Rate and review where you rate and review. Subscribe where you subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Share us on social media. If you have questions you want to ask, contact us. David love to ask your questions. If you have cool drawings of goats that you'd like to send Dave, we'll post them. If you have cool pictures of goats, we'll post them. It's, it's, it's Facebook. We, we, we want to do cool stuff. 
we, we want to engage with our listeners. So I'm encouraging you. Please, send us something. Do you have an idea of what the underground bunker might look like? Do you, do you have a, a plan for it? Do you have schematics you've drawn out? I, I, I've, I've tried. I, I've, I've tried. It's really hard. Anyway, thank you all so much. Uh, again, you know, this is episode nine. And we love putting it together and we love making it for you. So thank you again so much. And stay safe out there. Cover your face. Wash your hands. Black Lives Matter. <laughs>